Welcome back to an awesome retrospective episode from Talking with a Mouthful. I'm Nightingale Nguyen. And I'm Michael Chan. And yes, as Knight just said, this is a retrospective with Rhett Morita. Rizzy, <laughs> how are you doing, buddy? I'm feeling the dark side, so you I'm are, feeling that's, good. That's why you're wearing- I can wearing... join you. My name is Knight. Is that, is that a Kylo Ren mask? Kylo Rex. Oh my God, man. That's awesome. The only problem with that thing is it's not covering your chin, man. It's not covering your chin. It's not protecting you fully. It's true. It's true. I, I could uh, I could still catch it wearing this mask. Are you wearing... Hey, is that is that a laser glove? I am wearing a laser glove. Look at this. <laughs> nice. Uh, but, you know, I'm sorry to say that you're not going to be able to damage my eyes with that because uh, your lasers can't go through my screen. Uh, oh, no. I am foiled. <laughs> All right. So how are you and how are you handling the fact that we are in the second wave? Uh, I think at this point really all you can do is just surf it mm-hmm. because you can't fight it like any wave, no matter how you stand in front of it, it's just going to keep on coming. So unfortunately it's put my mask on, wash my hands, social distancing and ride this wave until that vaccine gets here. Yes. Not, not the one that shows up, you know, this month. But the one that shows up later down the line, that's actually had, proper test done exactly not the trump uh, acme <laughs> vaccine but in all seriousness um night nate how about you how are you doing before before i talk ladies first how are you i've been i've been feeling fabulous thank you yeah yeah that's why you put nightingale happy as your uh, zoom name today yeah i think you're happy yes <laughs> so i i've actually uh been back to work i'm working at a townhouse sales center where I uh, find it difficult to get people to listen to COVID-19 recommendations and precautions. I continually have to tell people to either wear a mask or wear their mask properly because a lot of people seem to like wearing it under their nose. I don't understand why they don't get that you have to wear it over your nose. And Rhett, you're, you're giving me a funny look. I am like, no, it's more in, in reference to people who wear their masks under their nose. Yeah, the amount of frustration I have of seeing that in grocery stores where so many of the workers are improperly wearing their PPE. And it's just very frustrating to see them. Oh, you're wearing your mask, but it's on your chin, under your nose, or your visors over your top of your head, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it can be a bit tedious and tiresome sometimes. And it's, I, most, of the t- most of my time is spent biting my tongues. So I don't actually get mad at people. Um, I just keep my distance and keep my mask on and get in and out as fast as I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find that, yeah. Like, because I, I obviously still have to go grocery shopping or go to the pharmacy and stuff and find myself going in and out faster and faster as time goes on. Because like, I just... I just don't want to risk it, you know, and I do have someone in my family that's immunocompromised. So I have to be even extra careful as of late. So, but yeah, like uh, moving to, to more positive things. How has your food been since the last time we talked to you? How's this food sitch? The food situation or the food sitch, as you would say, has been getting a bit tiresome. I will admit I, I'm, I, greatly miss going out to a lot of the restaurants that don't really provide takeout. So I'm limited to the takeout restaurants now. Mm-hmm. And I've probably eaten more, honestly, more fast food in the last three, four months than I have in the last you know, two or three years combined, because that's the easiest takeout kind of process, especially takeout windows. That's like, obviously that they're easiest just to even not have to go in the restaurant at all, just to be able to drive up, open your window, do a quick exchange, push a couple of buttons and then, Get, get out of Dodge kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, have you been cooking at all at home? Or is I'm it- cooking a little bit. Yeah, but again, I'm just, I have a very, a pretty limited amount of food that I cook. So it gets, I get tired very quickly. <laughs> yeah, It's like, oh, this cycle, I just had this four days ago. Yeah, I know, but it's easy. It's okay, great. So, I mean, I'm not generally not too concerned with, I just get 
what I need for my body to work well. That's really all I think about now. Like I said, all my finer dining, all my great dining experiences are always out anyways. So mm-hmm. uh, at home, I'm just, whatever's good and that I can cook that's healthy and, and pretty fast, I'm happy with that. So have you, have you tried uh, sitting down in a patio at all? I have, let's see, have I been at, I, I have actually have not eaten in a patio. I know I've seen pictures of you eating at a patio. So you yeah, maybe- no, we, we did. We tried it. Yeah. Uh, How, but we didn't do it a lot. Like I think in total we've been three times. That's it. Yeah. Once was for a birthday where we, yep. we were split into two different tables. Yes. Part is for my, uh, for my nephew. And then like we went once on our own and ended up like sitting basically next to highway seven. <laughs> <laughs> in an empty, empty, empty patio area in a parking lot. Uh, and then once up in Stouffville, basically next to Main Street. And yeah, there was like just two tables. So I felt pretty safe. But honestly, like, I still, even though I felt safe all three times that we did it, like, I... I still don't feel safe, safe. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think I'll do it again, especially now in the second well, wave. Heck no. Yeah. And especially since we'll be primarily almost all inside from now on as well. So that will definitely be a different experience. I have, yeah, I've yet to sit down anywhere inside. I, I've actually gone to one concert type event. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can say, I can explain that what it feels like to be in the Phoenix with 50 people in the Phoenix, all at our own couch table situations all about eight feet apart mm-hmm. and literally a, a venue that can hold or is licensed to hold a thousand people with 55 people in it. Wow. And it was weird. Like, honestly, I just, I, I wanted to do it just to experience it. And, and because the Phoenix is a very big concert venue with, you know, like 30 foot ceilings, it's not like you're in a small room. So, you know, like yeah. they're not, the air is being circulating and it's a very big space. But even then, I'm not totally sure I would do it again unless there's something I really, really, really wanted to see. But I honestly felt sorry for the uh, uh, venue because I don't see how they can make money with mm-hmm. a place that's supposed to hold a thousand people with only 55 people in it. Yeah. Was there a, was there, there was serving staff of any kind? Yep. yep. Serving staff. They would come wearing masks and they would serve you just like a, a wait, waitress would. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an open bar that you go to or a stand-up bar that you go to. Um, but uh, yeah, it just felt very bleak and weird to, to see your friends. And I'd be talking to my friends two, two couches away, like 25 feet away, shouting at them oh from our God. little couches. But I can only imagine because like, I mean, it's one thing to be a guest, but it's another to be someone who works there. And I assume having to deal with way more people, you know, encounter a lot, a lot of people over and over again and it's uh it's dangerous you know but people have to work and that's actually something uh we would kind of like to to talk about today so our food feature is actually going to be wimpy's diner i know that normally we do mom and pop shops and wimpy's is a chain but uh I'm going to start by talking about and giving a shout out to Brenda, who is a server at the Wimpy's near my home at Bayview and Elgin Mills in Richmond Hills. She, prior to the pandemic, she was, she has always been an amazing, amazing server and uh, always providing amazing service and everybody loves her. And she is my daughter's favorite server. Like, you know, my daughter used to only be able to say mama, dada, grandma, grandpa, mama, yeah, yeah, and B, B being (laughs) Brenda. (laughs) She's just that amazing. And throughout the pandemic, I had been worried about Brenda because obviously with, you know, restaurants having to only operate on a takeout and, and delivery basis, I was worried that, you know, she wouldn't have work. And halfway through the pandemic, um, I had made an order from Wimpy's and they had to call me about one of the items because there was a special request. And when I answered the phone, it was Brenda. I was really surprised. And it turns out she had been working through the pandemic, the entire pandemic, um, you know, helping the kitchen staff with all the takeout and delivery orders. And she had to encounter, obviously, all the Uber drivers, all the delivery people. And, it, you know, it's, it's still dangerous. And she doesn't drive. So she took uh, public transit, which put her into, into more danger. And so, you know, it was, it was just amazing you know, what she had to do to, to you know, pay the bills and, and keep food on her table and a, a roof over her head. So Brenda, thank you. Thank you, it's Brenda. Just, 
Yeah, thank, thank you. you so yeah, today we're, we're going to feature that wet fruit from that specific Wimpy's. So I have here a giant bag of Wimpy's food. Ordered. So normally from Wimpy's, I order the, because they have all day breakfast and that's my favorite diner food. Um, so that's why I normally order. But today I've actually ordered something I've never ordered from Wimpy's before. Not in person and not takeout. It Michael's is adventurous today. The Wimpy's <laughs> club sandwich. I've had one of those. Amazing. You've had it. Yeah? yeah. At a Wimpy's up, up on Kingstown in Scarborough here. That's right. <laughs> amazing. Man, that looks amazing. There's the, yeah. the turkey and the, uh, the bacon, three layers. Oh man, of bread and the tomatoes and the let. Oh, this looks amazing, guys. Look you at it. You didn't get fries with that? I, I, no, I didn't order fries because uh, oh. you have to add it as like oh, a, yeah, yeah, extra, yeah. you have to pay it's extra for it. But it does come with coleslaw. Mm. It's a tiny, tiny little slaw with a pickle on top, which, as everybody knows, pickles are my thing. So I'm very happy about it. But yeah, like this smells amazing. This looks amazing. And uh, while I take a bite of my first. Ever Wimpy's Club Sandwich Nightingale. Tell our listeners more about Wimpy's itself. If you're adventurous like Michael and want to go check out Wimpy's Diner, check out the one he's at at 10800 Bayview Avenue in Richmond Hill. Intersection again at Bayview and Elgin Mills. Wimpy's Diner is a 50s and 60s themed diner with coin-operated jukeboxes. We featured other diners before. We can't help but love our jukeboxes. Remember, Michael, there was a jukebox at our table at Three Coins? I do remember that. I love that. Right? Love there are jukeboxes at the uh, Wimpy's um, at our tables when, um, when we were still able to go. Right? Anyway, Wimpy's was a was at first a drive-in back in 1961. Then in 1988, it became a diner with a full established menu. Now it's a chain where you can have a groovy time. That's actually a term back in the day, guys. Groovy. Anyway, we appreciate all the hardworking people who are basically our heroes during this pandemic. And the Google reviews do not lie. Here are what the customer reviews say about during this pandemic about this particular Wimpy's Diner. Always friendly staff and great food. Been coming here for a couple of years now. Serving staff are always super friendly. Great service and the meal tastes really good. Definitely recommend and we'll visit again. Their service is amazing. Food is always good. The owners treat you like family. So guys, please thank all the amazing people who are still working to make our lives a little bearable during these unusual times. These little pleasures that we get to enjoy, such as ordering food. We must again always recognize the brave frontliners who still risk their health just to end their lives to serve us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, as Knight is saying, you know, and as an extension of this shout out to Brenda, we want to thank all the frontline workers at all the food businesses, at all the stores, it's everywhere who it's have been even working. Even people, throughout. postal care, everybody. Mm -hmm. Even Michael, who's going out to still sell houses to people. Even us thank as you. actors, we're still trying to entertain all y'all during this time. And there's one group of people that I don't think get enough credit and get enough of a shout out and get enough appreciation that is the lab workers i know quite a few and some of them have to actually do the testing and 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 come into contact with live covid so you know you guys are doing a lot of good work in the labs thank you so much for doing all these tests like the testing capacity now is humongous you guys must be working like overtime just trying to process so many tests so thank you so much yeah uh, Rhett, you had mentioned you wanted to thank teachers. I have quite a lot of friends that are teachers, and in these times, what they seem to be going through and the what seems to be an unfair kind of situation in which their voices are so far down the kind of chain that often what they want to see implemented isn't approved by anything above them. So their voices go kind of go unheard, and they're just told, get back into school, deal with this, deal with that. And I think they're doing a a great job and I don't think any teacher ever imagined they'd be sort of like on the front line of something or in a, in a potentially dangerous situation as a teacher as it's not a job you think oh policeman fireman a teacher but they are actually in a kind of risky situation so uh, you know I definitely feel for them and uh, think that they're just it's teaching as itself is a special um, gift to children mm -hmm. to be a good teacher I think it's a very special position and now they're also placed in a situation, as I said, that's potentially hazardous to their health. So all, to all teachers out there, you know, thanks for teaching the kids and thanks for dealing with all the 
changes you're dealing with. That, you know, that's what I would like to say. Yeah, all of our lives have clearly changed. Like now our lives are now virtual. So our eyes are taking a strain, even our health. Like we can't always go to our gyms and everything. It's just been, even our diets have changed. Uh, Also, I wanted to say thank you to all the public transit drivers and operators and workers and staff, because without you guys, people, you know, can't get around, people can't get to work. And so you guys provide a very important service and, you know, you put yourselves at risk all the time, all the time, every day. Mm-hmm. And finally, of course, thank you so much to all the emergency workers, doctors, nurses, EM, you know, EMS, all of you. You know, the work that you do saves lives. And um, so we wouldn't be here without you. Yeah. And finally, I just want to do a shout out to Michael, who's also a parent because his whole life has changed. And also to all parents who have to like take care of their kids indoors now because they have to change their style of working and everything. And Yeah, to everyone who's able-bodied, who's trying to help, like, their elderly neighbors buy groceries and everything. Like, everyone here is a hero. So, big thank you to everyone from all of us here at Talking With Our Mouths Full. All right. So, back to uh, less serious stuff. Wow, this sandwich is delicious. I've already eaten half of it. Oh, no. Do you have, like, Ah. a... You want to try? You want to try again, Knight? Because last time I apparently failed. But you're like on the bottom of the screen, so, and I've I've realized that my okay. So let's try try this. There it goes. There it goes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. You like it? Good. Red. What did that look like on your screen? Did I actually get it in her mouth or not? On my screen, it was slightly to look like the left of her mouth. uh, Yeah, left of her mouth. You know, we'll find out in the recording and then I'll put it online. Yeah, no, this sandwich is absolutely delicious. I'm very happy I I got it. Uh, it, Do you have a favorite diner food, like uh, a go-to when you do have diner food, Rhett? Uh, Diner food specifically? The only sort of diner place I go to is the Lakeview Diner on Dundas Mm -hmm. in Essington. That's sort of the all-night diner that I was often there after going to a club or something late at night. So it's, that's kind of the famous uh, venue. And uh, they have some, actually they have quite decent food there. I have no idea how they're doing actually over the pandemic. It's my fear is like many restaurants, I'll go to look for it next time I'm downtown, they'll be gone. I haven't heard about them, but yeah. I'm sure, they're, I'm sure they must be doing takeout. They must be doing a lot of takeout. So I hope so. A different question. So what craft food do you miss the most? Because, you know, craft service on film sets have changed. So what craft food do you miss? I think I'm a, I'm a grazer. So it would be like grazing, being able to stick your hands in, like you're supposed to use little scoops, but stick my hands in like the chips, the popcorn or the trail mix, that kind of thing. Whereas now it's, everything's individually wrapped. Look, I've been on the set twice since we did the last, I've shot two things since we did the last podcast. And uh, yeah, though, now everything's individually wrapped. Everyone gets an individual package of food and no one, there's no sharing, none of that kind of stuff. So I definitely miss being able to go, oh, I got to just grab some of this and just quickly grab it, stuff it into a cup and walk around, you know, eating popcorn or trail mix out of a cup. So what was Brad Pitt's like craft service like? <laughs> So you really far ahead. I'm very curious. So before we do that, because I do want to hear the answer to that question, the reason why Nightingale is bringing up Brad Pitt is because today, for our second retrospective, we will be talking about the movie Johnny Swade. Now, la la. As you may remember from our first retrospective, Rhett had mentioned that he was in. If New- not, please listen to it. Yes, please listen to it. Red had mentioned that he was in New York shooting this film. It is an indie film that does star Brad Pitt, that he was very sick during the filming of this movie, and that he told Brad Pitt or made a recommendation to Brad Pitt, which I'll have him mention again later. So moving forward from all that, Red, what was Brad Pitt's craft services like? Because he was he was relatively unknown back then. His career started, his acting career started in 1987. This movie came out in 1991. So he wasn't that big yet. And even though he shot it after Thelma Louise, he was shooting it before that movie came out. In fact, before that movie was finished uh, editing. So he was not famous. He was not a sex symbol. He was a nobody. So what was it like? Okay, so let's go into the... So it was actually shot 
in the late fall of 1990, actually. Oh. It was officially, officially released in 92. Oh, okay. Yeah. It took two years for it to actually get to the sort of official segment. Um, I saw it in 91 at the Toronto Film Festival when it first premiered. Right, yes. Um, so that's a bit of the background about that. And yes, we're going back into... so, But, but between our shooting it and it being premiering at the Toronto Film Festival, Thelma and Louise did come out. Yes. Because, and I, I know this because, after the film, the screening at the Toronto Film Festival in 91, one, the second question that he was asked was, hey, Brad, I saw you in Thelma and Louise. What do you do to keep such great abs? That was the second question that he got asked. And I remember- Let us know. I was like, how embarrassing. Like, that's a question that comes like, oh, this is embarrassing. Oh, Toronto. So- that was the question was asked. So I know that by order because the person referenced Thelma and Louise and they were impressed with Brad's abs from seeing him in that movie. Well, Thelma and Louise didn't make him a sex symbol, but... Uh, it did. And arguably it launched his career. It, it did, it, yes. The hitchhiker that... Went, we, who's that hitchhiker kid, man? We want that guy in our next movie, et cetera, et cetera. So that definitely happened. Uh, back when I worked on Johnny Swade, which was actually, in, I said, in 1990... He was basically unknown. He'd been on Facts of Life a couple times, I think it was, and a couple other TV shows, but he hadn't been in any. He'd been in one small movie, and this was his first, one of his first leads, the lead of in the film Johnny Swade. Now, Tom DeCillo, who's the director and writer, had written Johnny Swade 10 years earlier and performed it. He was also an actor. He performed it as an actor off-Broadway 10 years before making the film Johnny Swade. It was a one-man show, right? Yeah, and he tried to for basically almost 10 years, raise enough money to turn it into a film. That was his goal. So he'd, he'd obsessed about this movie, which I'm, I'm saying because it, it comes in, that fact becomes important later on. But he obsessed about this movie, movie night and day, trying to make his first indie feature. And again, the background about Tom was that Tom and I were both in the same agency in New York. He was oh, also wow. a DOP. So when he hired me, it was because he found me on the roster at the Gersh Agency in New York where I'd been hired about, or I'd been sort of represented from about 18 months earlier, which is I'd mentioned to you how I'd been with this agency for 18 months. I hadn't really seen any scripts or any inquiries at all until basically the agent that hired me or rep me left the agency, formed his own agency, and then a new agent came in. Then she looked at all the roster and found my reels literally in the back of the shelf, kind of behind all the other reels went, I found your reels. You're amazing. Well, your stuff was in the back. No one even looks at it. I went, well, I just thought it's an American agency. Maybe there's just no one's interested. I'm just lucky to be in this agency. She said, no, I don't know why, but I'm going to start pushing you. So when that new agent came in, suddenly everything changed for me. And I started seeing scripts sent to me all the time. Wow. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I was the youngest person in this agency, the only Canadian in the agency. So they had to like ship the, you know, the scripts from New York to Toronto, everything. It cost them a bit more, blah, blah, blah. But in the next year or so, I'd be sent a hundred, about a hundred scripts to read. And 90 of those scripts were turned into features. So I saw a lot of actual, they don't send me spec scripts. They'd only send me scripts of, of shows according to production. And those were 90 primarily independent features going into production that I, that, I would, that I would read scripts of, including a script called Little Man Tate, which was Jodie Foster's first film. I, I was reading the first draft of that script. And then there's a whole bunch of others, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that's probably the most famous, the biggest script of any script that I read at that time. Mm-hmm. So Tom DeCillo is in the same agency and he finds me and talks to my agent, loves my reel and says, that, no, I'd love to work with him, but we got to bring him to New York. So I have to go through all the paperwork because I had to get a temporary work visa to get into the U.S. And I had to show all the awards I won because they don't allow Canadians into America that easily to shoot films there, even small independents. Mm-hmm. And Tom had graduated from Sundance Film Institute. So the project, whatever project he wanted to do, the Sundance was going to back it in some ways as well. So that was part sort of our pull. And that became a, a big important uh, calling card for us in order to get equipment as an example, because we are a very small budget film between 90 and $120,000. Um, I mean, we used to uh, 500. It's, 
okay, there's so much be like huh. things behind the scenes, that I'm, and I'll get to some of that, but okay. this is the original production budget. Um, and we were able to get our camera package almost donated basically from Panavision, which was amazing because wow. we had basically letters from Robert Redford and Sundance Institute saying, Oh yeah, this is Sundance Institute. Oh yeah, this guy's great. We, you know, you should back him. And because of the, the influence of Robert Redford and the Sundance Institute, Panavision mm -hmm. New York gave me basically most of the camera package that a, a DOP name. Oh God, what's his name now? Gordon Willis, who shot the Godfather. I was using his equipment package. Wow. Like the filter package I had, I went, it says gold, and gold embossed lettering said Gord Willis Godfather. It's like, this is from the Godfather. I'm using stuff that was used in the Godfather. But that was the package we were able to use because of the, uh, uh, the Sundance letter that we had. So that was incredible. And we would shoot this film in Williamsburg, New York, part, part of Brooklyn, basically, in kind of a, a down and out, kind of desolate, mostly uh, sort of abandoned buildings. That's where we were shooting in because it was very cheap to shoot. Our location fees are very, very cheap when you're shooting in kind of like abandoned buildings in that kind of area. Yeah. And I went down there two weeks before the film to do the prepping. We still hadn't, hadn't cast anybody yet. And about nine days before we were supposed to start principal photography, the director showed me a tape of an audition of this kid. And I said, yeah, you know what? Of the people you showed me, that guy's the best guy I've seen, but I would change his last name because I'd make fun of a guy whose last name's Pitt. I go, man, your acting's a Pitts, man. And that's, <laughs> that's yeah, two thirds of our listeners agreed. Like he would be a celebrity if he changed his last name. <laughs> exactly. That's all he'd have to do. So that was, needless to say, uh, he, he, he did well with even with the last name of Pitt. Because, yeah, I yeah. did remember that uh, reading that Tom DeCillo couldn't find the right guy to be Johnny the way he saw Johnny in New York, right? Because you guys yep. were in New York. So he did end up going to L.A. or at least casting from L.A. Yeah. So what was, uh, what was Brad's tape like? Uh, it was, I mean, it's so funny to like, compared to everyone else I saw, he seemed both the most natural at playing a kind of awkward, unsure of himself man that still had charisma. That's the only way I could describe it. Mm -hmm. There's other guys that played awkward, but they weren't interesting to look at. And then there were guys that were forcing their kind of awkwardness that didn't feel real. And then there were other actors that were um, just some, kind of saying their lines, but they were just sort of saying their lines. But I just remember thinking, yeah, there's this guy, he... I don't know what's, what is specifically, besides he was a good looking kid. I was like, oh, he's a good looking man. It's like, I noticed that immediately, but I went, how he kind of, his, he has his draw and the way he kind of looks around where he's not sure. It all felt completely natural to me. In fact, to me, that is Brad still to this day. He's kind of an aw, gee, shucks kind of guy. So. Yeah, we haven't mentioned this before. The movie is about an aspiring uh, musician who, almost masks his vulnerabilities with an over-exaggerated uh, look and over-exaggerated personality. I don't, I don't know if that was a, a, a decision from Tom in his writing to make it so exaggerated, but it's, it's just big compared to everyone else. But yeah, Brad played it really well. Like all of that vulnerability you could see right there. You yes. You right through the 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 larger than life personality that he was portraying the larger than life hairdo that he had <laughs> oh my god the hair did that take yeah. a long time to do it, did. it took some it, we, at the first time we set it up it took two hours to that but i was like i had lit the first shot and i was like one what's going on and the director's freaking out and we're freaking out with the ad because brad's hair wasn't ready yet because he was still trying <laughs> his pompadour they're trying to get his hair to get up higher and it would get to a certain point that it would sink and they'd try to have to build it up again. And it's like, no, no, it's gotta be up. It's gotta be up. But it was very hard to get it to, to stay up like you know, four or five inches above his head and that, keep it in that kind of fashion. Did Just it cost to 70? our listeners, there's a lot of spoilers about this film. So y'all gotta watch the movie, okay? We I'm all know Brad's hot. <laughs> so y'all gotta watch this film. Johnny did did, okay. did, did uh, hair cost $70,000? <laughs> Back then, no, not that. Like Seventy cents. It's more like spit and chewing gum, probably. So we had. So what's the secret to his abs? What's the food? There was no food. There was nothing specifically. Like he didn't eat a lot generally, and he and he did talk about 
And, and honestly, we're talking about something that's like 30 years ago. So the memory is very fuzzy. And the one thing right. I will say to you, like any story is that this is my side of the story. So I'm going to say that kind of as a writer or preface before I continue on. It's like, I'm giving them my best recollections 30 years later, and it's only from my side. So, you know, the, the, if you ask Tom, you get a different story. Someday I'm going to sit down with Brad and speak to him and, you know, we'll, we'll, change, we'll exchange stories and we'll see what each one of us remembers about our side of the story. But I don't know if you remember this, but uh, since it was an indie movie, did everyone eat together? Oh, yeah, we ate together. Is the food like it is now where it's like a, a buffet and all that or, or? It'd be a buffet, but would, rather than, you know, your big spreads and the big union jobs, mm. it was a buffet with like three warming chafing dishes. That was it. And it would be vegetables, a meat, and some other kind of carbs thing of some sort. Carb thing of some sort. Nice. I want yeah. to try that. <laughs> yeah, and that's the story you're saying that because the story links into this other film that Tom did, which I consider his best film, which is called a film I told you about earlier called Living in Oblivion, uh-huh. which was Tom made this about nine years after Johnny Swade, which was basically the whole film's about making an indie movie. And it's only loosely masked or loosely describing what it was like to make Johnny Swade. And Dermot Mulroney is an actor who plays me in the film, mm-hmm. who met me during one of those lunches that we had during the making of Johnny Swade. That's one of those weird connection things. Because Dermot Mulroney at that time was going out with Catherine Keener, who's also in the movie. Right. And Dermot Mulroney had just finished shooting a film called Young Guns 2. Young Guns 1 was quite a pretty hot... Yeah, yeah, it was. Kiefer Sutherland, kind of Patrick Death, all these kind of hot young uh, actors, kind of like a boy's film, were in that movie. And uh, Dermot Mulroney was in that movie. He plays one of the smaller parts, but he was in it. And so they made a sequel. And so he just finished shooting it, and then he came from LA to visit his girlfriend, Catherine, on our set. So one day at lunch, there we were all sitting beside Dermot. He was telling us stories about um, working on Young Guns 2, because I was asking, wow, Young Guns 2, that must be really cool, blah, 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 this sort of thing. And I just, as a curious side note, just recently, another friend of mine named Ron Oliver, a director who was the director of the film Prom Night 3 that I shot for him, uh, one of my earliest movies I ever shot, told me that he had worked on a TV movie with Dermot Mulroney about two years ago and asked Dermot saying, by the way, Dermot, you were playing my friend Rhett when you played him in, in Living in Oblivion. Dermot went, goes, I met him. And Dermot even remembers meeting me at lunch because he knew when he made the making of the film that he'd be playing the DP and he knew who it was because he'd met me. And, you know, his, his, as I said, his ex-girlfriend was uh, in the movie. His ex-girlfriend, Catherine Keener, who's a great actor, really great actor. She's also in Living Oblivion. So she's the one actor that's in Johnny Swade, and she's in the film that's about the making of Johnny Swade, basically, nine years later. So that's, that's a, amazing. How, like, and I would highly recommend that film to, to, for you to see that film. If anyone's interested in indie filmmaking, that's considered by many people to be one of the three best films about what it's like to make an indie film. I will absolutely check it out. Living in Oblivion. Steve Buscemi is in that. He plays the director. So for that alone, it's fun. And and I said, I gave you a little funny history about Catherine Keener playing herself in the movie that's about making of Johnny Swade. She's basically playing the actors that she was from the first movie. So it's like, it's another weird coincidence. Here's another name that's uh, in Johnny Swade. Samuel L. Jackson plays a bit part. And uh, were you, were you there to shoot that or were you already? uh, there when Samuel was there. Oh, so unfortunate. That would have been a great, yeah, that would have been a great connection. I mean, I also missed, there was a whole sequence with Tina Fey that, I, yeah, Tina, no, Tina Louise, Tina Louise. Uh-huh. Tina Louise was the movie star from the original Gilligan's Island TV show. Oh. And she was, had a bit part in uh, Johnny Swade. And I was so looking forward to her because I grew up as a little kid watching Gilligan's Island. So I knew Mer- who the movie star, Ginger, the movie star was from this show. But I got sick and didn't finish the film and, and had to leave before we got to that part. Right. So tell us about the, the, your experience filming it before you kind of got sick. Or were you already sick from the start? No, I got sick there. I got mono. I got I got mono when I was there, oh, and 
I ended up working for about three days with about like 102.5 fever, trying to eat as much aspirin as I possibly could. Every night, I'd be so hot that I'd wake up and the entire bed would be covered in sweat. Like literally, I could wring it out of the sweat on my body. And it affected me so much that I couldn't hold anything down. So I literally lost like five pounds in like four or five days because even water, I'd get a cramp and I'd go to the bathroom immediately. It was ex the worst extreme. I thought it was actually dying kind of version of mono that I've ever heard anyone having. And one day I was doing a shot, my eye to the eyepiece. I was panning and I passed out in the middle of a camera move because I was so overheated basically. And it's, it's, so finally I came to the point where I thought to myself, even though I thought I was a really tough and vulnerable 26 year old muscular dude, I can't continue on this. And so I said to the producer, even though this is my first film in New York, I thought after this film, I'm going to LA, goodbye Toronto, I, I've made it. I made a quick left turn when I got sick and I said to the producer, I can't continue. I've been trying for three days to work while sick, but you got to find somebody to replace me. And within a day after that, they found someone to replace me. Joe DeSalvo, right? Yes. So Whose name you see in the credit. Is it normal that if a cinematographer is replaced that uh, the original doesn't have any credit on it? No. Here's we get into the interesting part. <laughs> Yay. Stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned. <laughs> you heard it here. So what happened was... When I left the movie, Tom, as I described earlier, who was very intense about producing this because he'd focused 10 years of his life trying to raise money to make it happen, began to call, leaving threatening messages, saying basically that I had screwed up his movie because I'd faked being sick. That's what he started like leaving messages in Toronto. Oh, God. Now, the unfortunate part was he didn't have my number. He had my father's phone number. And he started leaving threatening messages, like basically saying, if you come to New York, I'm going to kill you. Oh, wow. And which my, my father said, do you know this guy named Tom something something? He says he's going to kill you if you ever come back to New York. I went, oh, yeah, he's the director of Johnny Suede. Holy. So that was happening. And I was obviously not very happy about that. Mm -hmm. Flash forward about nine months from, from this point, And I get a call from the producer from the film. And I, I go, hey, Yoram, how you doing? And he goes, hey, Rhett, da, da, da. And he starts talking and I'm saying, well, why are you calling me? And he said, well, here's the thing. We ran out of mo money and we're in post-production. We can't finish it. So I said, well, I'm not going to give, like I was laughing going, I'm not going to give you any money. And I'm thinking about your director's threatening to kill me. Like what, what kind of you know, BS is this? And he goes, no, no, here's what's happened. We realized that we can get some insurance money I said, yeah, okay. He goes, so what does that have to do with me? He goes, how we'll get insurance money is say that we have to do a major reshoot because you were so sick that you screwed up on the movie. And the only way the insurance company would accept that you screwed up on the movie is if you take your name off the movie. Whoa. So the insurance company would say, we'll give you the money, but the DP has got to take his name off of it because then we'll believe that he was so sick that he made so much bad mistakes that he's taking his name off the movie. Holy crap. So I said to the producer, if you promise that that effing director doesn't call me and threaten me or my family because he doesn't have my number, that he's going to kill somebody, I will take, gladly take my name off your, your film and I'll sign any papers and you can get your insurance money. And with that insurance money, which would supposedly to be used for a reshoot, you can use that to finish your film. Right. And so that's how they finished the film. How much of the film did you actually shoot? Exactly, almost exactly half. It was a, a four-week schedule, and I shot basically uh, 13, uh, no, I shot nine days. Mm -hmm. And it was like a 20-day shoot, shoot. So from that point, we flash forward another five months, and voila, it's appearing suddenly at the Toronto Film Festival. So of course, I go to my friends, Johnny Swede's coming. I, I, let's go see this. I shot half this movie. So buy tickets. Like every DP that I know, I like to sit near the front of the theater so I can really see the images really clearly. So I sit in there third row from the front, watch the movie and my buddies, I bring my two friends there and I'm seeing the parts I shot. Oh, they're asking me, you shoot this? Yeah, I shoot this, shoot this, shoot this. No, I didn't shoot this part, blah, blah, blah. 
And, uh, you know, it was a so-so movie. Where I, I, I didn't think it was that great a movie when I was working on it. And then the film ends, and I go, great. And all of a sudden, a spotlight comes on. I go, what, what's happening? And out walks the director with Catherine Keener and Brad Pitt. And, and my buddy's going, there's a the director. I said, oh, my God. I didn't know there was going to be a Q&A. I didn't, because it was like basically the premiere. Yeah. The director's walking out. He takes five steps and he clocks me and he sees me in the third row and he starts glaring oh. at me. My friends are going, he's still mad at you. I said, no, what an, you know, what a hole. And I goes, he's looking, he's looking at me like he wants to kill me. And I'm going, if I didn't take my name off the movie, you never would have finished the movie because I basically gave you guys $50,000 in insurance money by taking my name off the movie. Oh, wow. So... He walks out glaring at me. Brad walks out. He looks at me. He kind of gives me a nod. And he pokes Catherine. Catherine sees me. And they both give me the nod. And they go, oh, yeah, because they know me. Because I'd hung out with Brad while we were, you know, between shooting and stuff. Uh, it, during When he arrived for a couple of days, our apartments were a couple, you know, blocks apart in New York. And he didn't know anybody in New York. And I didn't know anybody in New York. So we sort of bumped into each other every so often because we were both two guys wandering the big city on our own. So, as I've said, that's what happens. Because there's a Q&A. So the second question I've already mentioned, embarrassing. Brad, how do you get your abs to be so fit? I'm like, oh, this is so, what a, this is a film festival. I'm embarrassed. Someone's asking that as a question. Third question. Uh, Tom, there's a really great look to this movie. Who is this DP you got? My friends are busy, busy elbowing me in the sides. And, and he goes, the director, Tom, looks at me and smiles and goes, yes, we were really lucky to find this guy, Joe De Silva." And he's looking at me, grinning as he's saying this, because he knows there's my two friends, Brad, Catherine, him, are only, the, only, only six people in the room know that I shot half the movie. All the rest of the audience thinks the guy's name you see on the screen, Joe De Silva, is the DOP. But I started the film, I set the look up, and he basically copied the style that I created for the movie. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of, I guess, for Tommy, thought that was like poetic justice because then my friend's saying, look at that. He's, you're right here in the third row. And he just basically kind of stabbed you in the back because he knows that he can say whatever he wants about Joe De Silva and doesn't have to mention you. And he's, cause you're, and you're standing, you're sitting right there, right in front of him. So that's a little background story of how that film Johnny Swade was finished and the uh, film festival with its inherent jab at me by the director still about you know eight eight about 14 or 15 months after i shot them you know shot the film for him so did you and tom ever make up no not even close oh it's, uh, it's unfortunate but he was being a bit of a dick so <laughs> i guess it's good that you stayed away from him how did your name end up on the imdb listing like did you put it on or did someone else put it on I didn't put it on, so I think that after everything was said and done, that actually the producer put my name on, added me as additional photography. Oh, that's that makes a lot of sense. That's really nice of them. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's yeah, a little background story, and that is uh, is fun. And, and as I said, so the character when you see Living in Oblivion, my mm. camera assistant on Johnny Swade was his name was Wolf. They use Wolf as the DP's name in Living in Oblivion, but he's supposed to be me. And people that know me say that, yes, the DP character is definitely Rhett. That's the people say that know me. They go, that's absolutely true. That's Rhett. And uh, there's a, f- a producer uh, named Colin Brunton, who does quite a lot of big productions in TV in Toronto now. Mm-hmm. He was used to give these courses called guerrilla filmmaking. And it comes from his background of making like indie, indie features and things. And yeah, it was one course about, oh, it must've been like 14, 15 years ago. And I took it just for fun. And somehow Living in Oblivion came up and I went, are you just saying that? Cause I'm in the room. And he goes, what? And I explained the whole, how I understand Living in Oblivion. Cause I said, that's a film about making Johnny Swade. And I was on, you know, two weeks of that movie. I know what, what that film was about. Colin was so impressed because he loves living in oblivion so much that he gave me, he refunded me the entire course fees. He goes, you're a wolf from living in oblivion. Oh my God. He goes like, he was so excited to go, I'm going to give you back your money. He goes, this is incredible. I've got a celebrity here. And it was just like this funny story. Cause he loves the whole indie film, uh, living in oblivion, which is again, the making of Johnny Swade. Were, so, you, were you portrayed 
accurately in that film or did he try to take pretty, the accurate, pretty accurately like oh, style wise very accurately and brad pitt is played very accurately by an actor named james lagrosse and when i saw living the oblivion i was bursting out loud when J with what things that James LaGrosse was saying as this character, because I knew that was what Brad was saying. And was, that's exactly what Brad was saying. And, you know, arguably we were both very young men, but Brad had very little, you know, set experience at that point. So he said some rather naive things uh, on the set quite a lot. And I remember I'd ha often have to bury my face into the camera because I'd be giggling. He'd say something, I'd go... <laughs> And I'd be waiting for Tom to answer because, and I'd be sitting there trying to stifle a giggle because I went, "What? Well, I can't believe he just said that." So when you see Living Oblivion, James LaGrosse will be doing things like that and be like, "Going, oh yeah, Tom's definitely taking a dig at Brad for some of the things that he was doing on that movie." <laughs> so you 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 mentioned you hung out with Brad quite a bit because you know you're both not from from New York. So yeah. uh, any any stories you can tell about your adventures? Oh, we're just we're just too young young kids really so i there's nothing nothing really brad was pretty much a loner at the time he mm -hmm. i mean we we dinner a couple times didn't really even say that much like we were just like well whatever you know this kind of stuff and uh i think what's a more interesting story and this is the idea of circles again uh, nightingale is that in 2004 i shot a film with juliet lewis called uh, chasing freedom in calgary and Juliet Lewis was Brad's girlfriend during the time of, make, of making Johnny Suede. So I said to Juliet, Brad did talk about missing his girlfriend a lot. And he was talking about you. And it's so weird that now I'm able to talk to you about what it was like working with Brad in New York when he was going, oh, I miss my girlfriend. And, it was, and he was talking about you. And Juliet went, oh, that's so sweet that Brad was saying that. Brad used to like to... He, he walked around with his, a guitar case full of CDs. He kept a bunch of CDs in a guitar case. And he walked around, because in the film, he, he plays guitar, and he was, he was not really a, that great a guitar player. So he brought a guitar just to practice. But most of the time, he walked around with a, a, a sort of a, a, a CD player, a CD discman, and a bunch of CDs in a guitar case. That was his shtick in New York. So, so uh, which scenes can you, I guess... Tell us that you shot roughly, if if you remember. I, I don't want to like spoil the film, but like, what what sections did you film? I mean, the scenes I shot are most of the scenes with Brad in his apartment. Okay. Which, okay. Now here's another again another story, which is the making of Johnny Suede was cursed with so many bad problems. That's why I say that Tom had to make Living in Oblivion because he was still processing or exercising out of his system some of the unbelievably bad things that happened to us. For example, we were shooting, as I described earlier, in this kind of almost abandoned apartment building in Williamsburg where we created a set. Well, no, we used basically an apartment as Johnny's apartment, uh, Johnny Suede's apartment, Brad's apartment. Yeah, it, got condemned. apartment. it got condemned on us on oh. day six of our shooting and they wouldn't allow anyone back into the building because they said, the whole floors could fall apart. You shouldn't be going in there. But we're saying, but we started shooting a film in there. How, what do, what do you mean? So we weren't allowed to go back in and continue our scenes because the, 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 the sort of city closed the whole building off. So they ended up just building two little flats and trying to shoot all the other scenes just against two little flats at a corner because we lost the whole, his whole apartment. Wow. The, um, the scene where he's kind of dreaming and then his window gets blown out. Is that, uh, was that like. That was, that was one of the set pieces that they built. Set. Okay. Okay. I mean, I was there for that part too. Yeah. But that was after we'd got, had the building been condemned on us and we weren't allowed to go back in anymore. My God. So I think I mentioned this to you in, in passing earlier. We got shot at while shooting one night in Williamsburg. You had mentioned it to me. Yes. Talk yeah. about that. <laughs> so we were shooting one night. And in that area, a lot of people that lived in the apartment buildings were um, squatters. Oh. Because they were basically like, I don't know, sort of uh, abandoned buildings. People would go in there and live in there for free because there was no one basically around. So one night we were filming and because we're filming at night, I was using some rather big lights out on the street corner. But some of these lights were flashing into other windows sort of across the street. 
So occasionally we hear people shouting, like we're trying to do sound takes and go, someone's shouting. Well, yeah, I don't know. Someone's like mad at us. They're shouting something. One day we were, one day we were shooting, we heard a bang. And I, I went, that sounded like a gunshot. I looked and the location manager was crawling on the ground going, that was a gunshot. And I started getting on the ground too. It's like someone had shot a, a stop sign. So it was like, you know, 50, 60 feet away from where we were shooting just as a warning for us to turn the lights off. Oh my God. We would like have events like uh, we'd be doing a scene and just around the corner, we hear somebody's car stereo. It's like, oh man, like we can't record the scene. Somebody's got their car stereo on. So we tell our location manager, there's some guy, there's a guy, his car must be around the corner. Go tell him to turn his car stereo down because we can't record sound. He'd go over there and tell the guy, excuse me, sir, knock on his window. Can you just turn your stereo down? Like we can't, we're trying to record, you know, sound just around the corner here. And all we hear is your booming bass. The man looked at our location manager, smiled, leaned over, opened up his glove compartment, showed off his Glock. His basically showed him his gun and went, you want me to do what? And our location manager said, never mind, never mind. And he just came back to him and said, no, we have to wait till he leaves. He's got to, he basically threatened me with his gun. That was the type of things that we were dealing with. And you, the film was still able to finish in four weeks. Yes. My God. On, here's, a, here's one other really rich story. On the uh, eighth day of shooting, our whole wardrobe truck got stolen under knife. Our, 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 uh, the, the driver was threatened with a knife. He, he said get, he got out of the truck and they drove away with our wardrobe van we had. Now, the fun thing about that was that 80% of Brad's wardrobe was Tom's personal wardrobe. And Tom was into vintage 50s clothing, which meant most of the stuff was irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind 50s clothes that were now gone and already established in the film. Oh, my God. So that's also the type of thing that was happening. So how were you able to, I guess, put those outfits back together? Did you have to buy new pieces or? We would, the wardrobe person, which had very little money, would just have to like make them by hand. Like impossible. And they would be, we'd be doing scenes where they'd be, he'd be wearing a sweater with these diamond uh, patterns on them yeah, and the yeah. diamonds would fall off because we taped them on. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't like the original one that was sewn in. We just had to quickly tape a, like a, a couple of gray diamonds on it and they would fall off as he's talking. <laughs> like, cut, uh, could you put the diamonds back on his sweater? So it, we had these hero shoes, hero shoes, same thing. We had to tape, all, tape on all these little, little ornaments that were on the original shoes because the original shoes which were vintage 50s from the 50s shoes were stolen in that van and we didn't about we didn't to have ask about the shoes if start. they got stolen too because yeah those shoes are pretty important they're, they're they're the entire film yeah you know that whole thing about the shoes exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's that's the type of thing that was going on in this movie hence tom nine years later still having to vent it out of the system wrote a film script about what it was like you know, loosely based on or not so loosely based on the making of Johnny Suede because it was such a horrific time. It was all star stuck in all of our memories. Like felt like those stories are stuck in my memories. Like someone shot a gun, like seriously at us. Yes. Not at us directly, just as a warning, like turn off your lights. Bam. I assume the, uh, you guys probably had a like insanely hectic shoot schedule, right? Like not, a, were there a lot of takes? Cause I imagine with how fast you. Not a lot of takes. I don't remember ever doing more than like four takes on anything. And Brad and everyone else nailed them in four. Generally, yep. That is, wow. For the final product that we got, that's incredible. When you know it under those circumstances, yeah, it's definitely incredible. No, it, it, it is. Like it is, for what I could say about the movie story or the message that gets a little muddled, um, it, it is a very good looking film. It's a technically sound technically well shot well put together film and the actors did their in my opinion their darnness to to bring everything to life with what they had uh so yeah i'm i'm very impressed now that oh my god you guys the conditions you guys are working under is just mind-blowing the most famous sequence that i shot that people know of is the sequence with nick cave and where he's the singer and there's a whole sequence in a kind of a sort of quadrant inner city quadrant where he's busy telling He's getting 
he's convincing one of the characters, Brad's character, to give him some money to make a demo and this kind of stuff. And they're they're busy eating chicken, basically. That's yeah, I yeah, that's a pretty iconic scene, man. I, that like if you look this film up, that is one of the the images or video clips that continually pop up. Absolutely. And Nick Cave had his hair quaffed up like he had big hair as well. They both had their hair going way up. It was like a who's got higher hair kind of moment. Yeah. So those two in my famous stories are the ones I always say, 6 a.m. leaving Manhattan and I'm having to sit in the hump. Brad's on this side and Nick Cave's on that side. And both of them look scary at six in the morning. (laughs) Nick Cave even scarier. He wasn't into heroin at that point, but he's just a scary-looking man <laughs> generally. Oh, he pretty he looked pretty rough. Even I mean, I thought maybe it was the makeup or whatever, but he looked rough in that film. He's yeah, he's but he's he's always been rough. He's like that's a part of his punk edge. He's like that. He's not yeah. that. Yeah, he's lived a rough life. That guy. He's, they've gone through a. He's like an Iggy Popish sort of character. Yeah. yeah. What was it like shooting with him? He's a, he's a sweet guy. Like he tries hard. He he enjoyed crossing over into films. I mean, he hadn't been in that much at that point. I don't think he'd been in Wim, Wim Vender's film yet. Could he be in like, I think it's called Wings of Desire is the big Wim Vender's film that he that eventually shows up in uh, sometime in the 90s, I think it is. But yeah, but anyways, yeah, he hadn't been in that yet. He had been only in a couple small things as well. And I barely knew who he was too. I had to look him up. Nick Cave, I've heard of him, but I had to look him up to find out who he was back at the time. What about uh, Catherine Keener? How was, uh, how was she? Catherine Keener's great. She's solid. She's like a great, so, like, she's an amazing actor. I, I, she's honestly, like, to me, because she's not, doesn't have kind of movie star, starlet kind of looks, she, but she's like, as far as pure acting, she's brilliant. Because, yeah, I, I, to me, she was the best actor in the, oh, she is. In the entire film. Right. She stole every scene she was in. She's solid. She's a solid actor. Everything she does is totally believable. Uh, she's great. I mean, I, I recently, this is a side story, but recently I posted about, uh, I worked with an actor named Cherry Jones who recently won her third um, Emmy. And she's actually, I think she's, she's like won the most Emmys for any supporting actor. So like she, that was the record. No one's ever won three supporting actor Emmys before. And I worked on a TV movie, movie with her in about 2003. And, and she's, again, not, she was playing opposite of Brooke Shields. And it was like classic. It was kind of like, that was actually very much like Catherine Keener, Brad Pitt. You know, Catherine, Brad Pitt's kind of like the, the Brooke Shields, really good looking person who can act. And, but the other person's not as attractive, but they're great actors. Catherine Keener and Cherry Jones, not as attractive, but man, are they great actors. Like, incredible actors. It's just, they, they do with, with what they have. And I guess they accept the fact that obviously we know the film is still 75% about looks generally. So um, you can become a great character actor, but all the leads are going to go to those Nicole Kidman, Brad Pitts, you know, the Charlize Theron's. Charlize Theron's I think is great personally, but you know, they will get those leads. Whereas the, the, the bit parts like uh, will go to the more interesting, you know, character actors or character faces. I, I did a, Disney movie with Amanda Plummer. She's a great actor. I loved her, but you know, she doesn't have, you know, lead looks. Right? Right. I don't know if you know who Amanda Plummer is from like, uh, she's in like Reservoir. Now she's in uh, Pulp Fiction in the scenes with uh, the very beginning with Tim Roth. She's, yeah, that's, that's Amanda Plummer. She's a, gr- she's Christopher Plummer's daughter. She's a great actor, but you know, not kind of, a, she doesn't have the lead looks, but, but yeah, she's in a wonderful, a wonderful actor. So, I mean, there are people who break that mold, right? Philip Seymour Hoffman, hell, Will Ferrell. Yeah. But speaking of looks, back to Brad Pitt. I noticed here, Nightingale, that you wrote on the Google Doc. We all know that Brad Pitt is hot. Yeah, I mentioned that. (laughs) What other stuff did you do on our social media for Brad Pitt? Oh, so I was asking what people, like, you know, favorite Brad Pitt movie. So what's your favorite Brad Pitt movie, Rhett? My favorite bad pit movie? Seven, probably. All seven. seven. How about you, Michael? Oh, uh, I like Fight Club. Fight Club, yeah. Fight Club. There's yeah, also yeah. Uh, uh, 12 Monkeys, so. 12 Monkeys, classic. Yeah, people have written in Moneyball, A River Runs, Legends of the Fall, Mr. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Smith, and Fight Club. Huh. No, one, no one put down uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons? Yeah. 
No. I like the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not his most dramatic movie, but I, I like the movie a lot. I was a seven. I, I, I I remember watching it and just going mm, okay, and that was it. I, right. I, didn't, I don't. That movie didn't captivate me. Right. Although, uh, what was the the name? The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now that's an interesting movie he did recently. Yes. It's been struck by a bit of controversy, but I'm just like contextually, I, I think that movie works. <laughs> For what it is i my, my my opinion about that is i'll see how it holds up 10 years from now because i thought it was good but not like academy award grade oh no no not, not academy award i'm just saying like i know a lot of people hate that movie and i'm just like you know for a tarantino movie especially like a, a modern like a recent one it's better than you know like hateful eight i can't <laughs> stand that movie yeah or django i, yeah. I i'm sorry i didn't like that one yeah but this one actually, I was like, yeah, I was entertained. I was entertained, and Brad, Brad was interesting. I didn't like the portrayal of Bruce Lee. That pissed me off. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> for obvious reasons. And but... you know the actual history, obviously as well. It's like, come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so you shot Brad's uh, apartment. So you you got to see him in his tidy whities though, because that was in an interesting. Yep, and in his crotch. <laughs> that, that is uh interesting was that a, okay i need to ask about that when his hand is down yeah. you, is that a his choice or was that a directorial choice that, that was weird is hard to, i don't like honestly i don't remember that at all okay i don't, I don't remember that i do like overall and this is again something that is seen in living in oblivion but portrayed as through tom's eyes is that and I described to you also the fact that often Brad would make suggestions, this is very early on in his career, that were way out of left field. And the character is kind of way out to left field. So it was always very difficult for me to assess whether that was a suitable suggestion or whether that was just like a stupid suggestion. Like I could never tell. That's why I tried to always try to stifle my, my, my Snickers because Tom would say, it's a great idea to go, oh, God, I feel like an idiot. I was making fun of it, but Tom loves it. And it's not my story. It was Tom's story and he knows it, especially since it had been sitting with him for like 10 or 11 years by that point. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, As we wind down, I, I have two more things. One, is Johnny Swade supposed to be a serious film or is it supposed to be comedic or is it supposed to be a combination? Because I, I can't yeah, tell. <laughs> To, to, I always felt it was a tragic comedy. There's, okay. that's it. It's like a, it's, it's, there's parts that are funny because the situation is funny, mm-hmm. but overall it's about a tragic character yes. who doesn't realize that he doesn't quite have it basically, which is, could be the story for a lot of, a lot of people in, in the arts. And he doesn't realize that he doesn't, yeah, he's not that special, which is, it's ironic that Brad Pitt would be playing this character considering where his career would go, at, you know, from that point. Yeah. But at this point, he's playing somebody that you think you got something, but you don't have anything. And yet, I would follow Brad's career because I did the absolute opposite trajectory. After that film, I stopped working in movies basically for five years. And w- during that time, I would be literally checking out Brad appearing in National Enquirer and seeing his, his sort of movie careers jump up in the next five to seven years after after that film. From, from 90 to, let's say, 96, the, the films that brad would do in that period of time that would totally change his career and change his arc so and i guess the second thing is are there any other stories you would like to tell us before we wind down us um from this film not not there's nothing there's nothing else about that film i mean again i honestly don't i would say it's like a 6.5 out of 10 that's my rating for that movie Uh, but i would but i would recommend living in oblivion to me that's like an 8 8.5 movie living in oblivion with steve buscemi and katherine keener all right. So as we near the close of this episode, Nightingale, you asked our listeners about Johnny Swade. Yes. And two thirds have not seen it yet, which is why we had a spoiler alert. <laughs> Thank you, Nightingale, for that enlightening piece of information. Thank you, Michael, for making me bring it up again. <laughs> well, I like making you bring things up again. I do have one small story I will tell. It's kind of a personal embarrassment story, but I would like to add it because it, it has to do with Nightingale. We've talked about things being in cycles and circles. So I talked about working on Johnny Swade in 1990, and I talked about it being at the film festival in 92. 
Well, then in 2006, uh, during the slow part, I was working for AMC uh, doing red carpet interviews. Yeah. And at that time, for about, I think from 2005 to 2008, AMC used to come out there to show that they broadcast out of Toronto. And they also had background short little red carpet uh, videos. And so I was asked to go shoot um, the Roy Thompson Hall premiere of, uh, of Babel was a movie. And Brad was in it. And yeah. so my, the host said, oh, yeah, we got, we're scheduled to do an interview with Brad. So the whole time I was thinking should I say something or not say something to Brad? Like after the interview, like I'm thinking it's red carpet. We're not gonna have any much time, but I'm in the back of my mind going, should I say something, not something? And in the end, I, I decided, no, it's embarrassing. I don't want to say hi, Brad, considering I'm a guy doing, to me, doing red carpet interviews compared to being a DOP on a feature film at the film festival. like, I, I'd fallen, I'd, it would look like I'd fallen to the bottom. And here we are, Brad's, you know, in this big premiere. And so, out of my own ego, I wouldn't say anything because I was embarrassed to, to, to think, here I am shooting behind the scenes interviews now. You know, uh, six, 2006 was like six, 16 years later. It's like, oh, some people would have done that, you know, five years before they shoot their first feature. But 16 years after I shot a feature in New York, I'm shooting behind the scenes. To me, it just felt like a very weird trajectory. And I was just embarrassed to uh, talk to Brad at that point. But next chance I get to talk to Brad, I'm going to take it just, just so you know. Lesson well, learned. Thank you. Except yeah. next time you're going to be starring with him. <laughs> yes. And then, and I'll be playing your son. So I'll be like a supporting. Okay. It sounds good. And, well, and then Nightingale, Nightingale will be like my sister. All right. I'll, I'll be adopted. There you, go. there you go. Brother, sister. Yes. You're the dad. And Brad Pitt is the supportive white friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, Thank you so Thank much you, for, for another uh, amazing, amazing retrospective. We really do appreciate you get bringing these stories to us and to our listeners because they are just absolutely fascinating and give us a glimpse into the life of a living legend, which is Brad you, Pitt. not oh. Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> so and it's beautiful seeing your reflection and how things are just coming in full circle for you. Yeah. It really is. So for people to follow your journey outside of our episode and online, where can they find you on social media when you do actually use it? Because I know you don't use it very much these days, but yes. how can they follow you? You can follow me on probably the, the best Instagram uh, persona is Rhett and Jet. R-H-E-T-T-N-J-E-T-T. Rhett and Jet. That's probably the best way to follow me. Awesome. All right. And now to us, Nightingale, how can people find you online? People can find me online on Instagram at night.nguyen. And I am on Instagram and Twitter as at Michael C.W. Chan. Plus I have a website, michaelchan.ca. Listeners, as we mentioned at the top of this episode, we are in the second wave. So please, please, please. Be careful, stay safe, take care of one another, wear your masks properly, social distance. It's not a time to become complacent. So as always, stay safe and stay Stay hungry. hungry. This has been Talking With Our Mouseful with Michael Chan and Nightingale Nguyen. Music by bensound.com, crafts by Janine Cantrell, photography by E, and voiceovers by me, Jessica Chan. If you enjoy our adventures, please consider following or subscribing to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Want to connect with us? Maybe even participate in our podcast? Look for us on Instagram and Twitter at at TWOMF Podcast. And as always, stay hungry.